In 2007, John Lennox, we know him, professor of mathematics down the road, debated Richard Dawkins, professor of biology, also down the road, over Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Famous book, famous for its efforts to basically ridicule Christians for their belief in God. And as the title suggests, it says if anyone who does believe in God, then they are obviously deluded. So they debated this, this topic, this book, and for John Annex it was quite a good success. So he set forth really good arguments for the existence of, of God, showing that there's evidence and good reason to believe in some kind of intelligent designer. But, at the end of the debate, in his closing remarks, Lennox says, as a scientist, he says that he believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead. This visibly shocked Dawkins. And Dawkins says this in reply, Well, there you have it. Just when you think Professor Lennox is making a good case for an intelligent designer, he brings up the resurrection of Jesus. So petty, so parochial, so beneath the universe. Why did Lennox have to bring up the resurrection? After all his hard work to make a good case for the existence of God, he goes and mentions something like the resurrection. If the resurrection is all about coming back to life after death, like real death, then it's physically impossible. I only got a C at GCSE in biology, and it was a long time ago, but I do know that when someone dies, then their heart stops beating, their lungs stop working, blood stops flowing around the body and taking the oxygen and all that's needed for the body to work. And if someone is dead for three days, then they cannot, not that they might not, but they cannot come back to life. Surely. For this to happen, it would break all the rules of medical science. It would need a miracle. And of course, according to secular materialist worldview, miracles do not happen. But the denial of the resurrection is not just a modern occurrence, not just a modern scientific thing, but it is something that's gone on through the centuries and even right in the early church. The Apostle Paul writes about the resurrection, defending the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But as we get going, what is the Bible's claim? What's the Christian claim all about? Well, here we have a little summary. Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish prophet who claimed to be the Christ prophesied in Jewish scriptures, was arrested, was judged a political criminal, and was crucified. Three days after his death and burial, some women who went to his tomb found the body gone. In subsequent weeks, his disciples claimed that God had raised him from the dead and that he appeared to them in various times before ascending into heaven. From that foundation, Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire and has continued to exert great influence down through the centuries. And so if millions of Christians have believed the resurrection for over 20 centuries, is there any evidence for the resurrection? Or, as Dawkins would say, is it just blind faith? Trusting in something without any evidence. Can we really believe in the resurrection? 
Well, this quote's from Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell is the author of a great book called Evidence that Demands a Verdict. And as a non-believer, he set out to do research to debunk Christianity. Can't be true. And so as he studied and researched and talked to people, he became more and more convinced that the Bible's claims were actually true. And he was asked by a university student why he couldn't refute Christianity. And he said, for this simple reason, I am unable to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, there are several pieces of evidence that we'll think about this evening. And um, in the first part of it, I want to kind of go through those. I've got five specific ones to think about those. And then in the second section to ask ourselves what difference does the resurrection make? If it is true, what difference does it make to, to life? And to help your memories, um, someone has helpfully put these, uh, all beginning with the letter E, so a nice bit of alliteration for you. We've got the execution, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, early records, and the emergence of the church. So they're the five things we'll have a look at. And uh, lots of you have a little piece of paper as well with a Bible passage on it. If you can have that ready, and when I call it out, please read it. That would be really helpful. And another thing, just to quickly mention, um, lots of stuff we'll talk about tonight does actually come from the Bible, so biblical records. And um, last month we had an equip on the reliability of the Bible, and we heard that it was good <laughs> and strongly attested to, so we can trust in the Bible. And actually, I read this this week um, by F.F. Bruce formerly of University of Manchester, and he says, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. So we can trust the Bible as being good records of the resurrection. So, first up, the execution. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that no one actually saw Jesus come back to life. Nobody was physically present in the tomb when he came alive, when he folded his grave clothes and when he walked out. So, one argument put forward is that maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe Jesus' body was switched with somebody else before he died on the cross. I'm not quite sure how that would happen because Jesus was in public view the whole time. People could see him. His accusers knew who he was and they wanted to condemn the right man. He was questioned by them and he was, had conversations with them. He answered them. When he's on the cross, Jesus, his, some of his disciples and even his own mother were there at the foot of the cross. Jesus even spoke to his mother, Mary. Who has John 19? When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So pretty sure that if Jesus' own mother could recognise him and talk to him moments before he died, it really was Jesus on the cross. So if it was Jesus on the cross, maybe he could have survived the crucifixion. Could he have survived the crucifixion? 
Well, again, if, you, if we think about what a crucifixion is all about and like, then again, it's highly unlikely. If someone had survived a crucifixion from Roman soldiers, then the Roman soldiers themselves would have been in a lot of trouble and may have even been killed themselves. But some people have put forward a theory called the swoon theory. I don't know if you've heard about this. The idea that Jesus fainted, so through the terrible physical exertion he went through, he just simply fainted and didn't really die. And then he was put into the tomb, and through the cool environment, through some rest, through smell, perhaps of the grave, he was revived and was able to come out of the tomb. But that just doesn't work when it comes to crucifixion. I was going to go into the glory detail of the crucifixion, but I'm thinking about the resurrection tonight, so I'll quickly summarise that. The Roman soldiers took Jesus out, sorry, took Jesus away to be flogged. A Roman flogging was it was just awful, brutal. His body would have been beaten and bruised deeply, his skin and his flesh ripped from his body. He would have lost a lot of blood, so much blood that he was just physically weak psychologically suffering in the stress and if you think about Jesus walking to, to the cross he wasn't even able to carry his own cross he had to have someone else come and carry it with him and then the actual crucifixion itself is just a, it's one of the worst forms of, of execution in, ever to be invented Jesus nailed to the cross slowly to die by suffocation as he tries to breathe there hanging in the air And also, if you remember when Jesus is dying on the cross, it's almost Passover and the religious authorities didn't want people hanging on the cross over the important festival, so they asked the Roman soldiers to speed up the process. And So the way they do that is by breaking the legs of those on the cross. And so they proceeded to break the legs of the two men either side of Jesus, but when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. But was he? Well, to make sure that he was dead, a Roman soldier drove a spear into his side. Blood and water came out. Now, this wasn't just a gentle stab in his side down here. This would have gone right through his lungs, up into his heart. So he was dead. Jesus was dead. There was a skeptic called David Frederick Strauss, a non-believer in the resurrection, and he says this about the swoon theory. There's a word in here, I forgot to check his pronunciation, so if someone can help me. It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the scapula, yeah, the tomb, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Such a resuscitation could only have weakened the impression that he had made upon them in life and death. At the most, he could only have given an voice, but could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm, have elevated their reverence into worship. Lots of hard words. But the basic point is that Jesus was dead. He did really die. And he was buried, being placed into a tomb. 
However, the Bible claims that three days after he was buried in the tomb, he came back to life. Out of the tomb. So how do you explain the empty tomb? Well, there are a few theories. One we've just mentioned, the swoon theory. He revived and walked out. But others think, well, perhaps the women, those women who first went to the tomb on Sunday morning to anoint Jesus' body, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. If this is true, then the disciples who also ran to the tomb to see it empty also went to the wrong tomb. But the women went to the right tomb because they knew where it was. Matthew 27 So they were sitting opposite the tomb. They could see where it was. And they went. But even if they had mistakenly gone to the wrong location, the Jewish authorities, those who knew where the body was, after hearing this claim that Jesus had come back to life, surely would have pointed out the correct tomb. And everything would have been settled. However, the tomb really was empty. And actually, the Jewish authorities... They knew that it was empty, and so they accused the disciples of stealing the body. So did the disciples steal the body? Interestingly, the chief priest wondered whether this actually might happen, and so listen to this from Matthew 27, 62 to 66. They feared that the disciples might steal the body, and so they posted a Roman guard, sealed the stone, and had to stand watch. So for the disciples to steal the body, this is what they would have had to do. First of all, they would have had to pick themselves up after the, the, the sorrow and the dejection of losing their leader, to get the courage to go and fight the Roman soldiers after they had just before run away from Romans, from the people in the Garden of Gethsemane. They would have had to overpower this Roman god. This wasn't just one soldier, this would have been a few soldiers grouped around the grave to protect it. Well, if they managed to overcome the Roman soldiers, then they would have had to move the stone. Often you've seen photographs and pictures of tombs in, in Israel, but what it would have been like is a tomb that's slightly down a hill, and this big, huge stone, you know what it's like trying to push a rock? Well, you can't do it, can you? A big, a big boulder? You need a few people to push it. And so what would have happened, it would have been slightly uphill. So you could roll it, and you roll it downhill, along a groove that would have been um, cut out of the rock. It would have rolled down, stuck into the place. They even put a, another stone the other side, or that side maybe, to, to stop it from, from being able to move. And so you just can't remove that stone unless you've got a lot of people, a lot of equipment to move 
the stone out of the way. J.N.D. Anderson, the Dean of Faculty of Law and the Director of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies at the University of London, he says this about the theory of the disciples stealing the body. He said, it just would have run totally contrary to all we know about the disciples. Their ethical teaching, the quality of their lives, their steadfastness in suffering and persecution, nor would it begin to explain their dramatic transformation from dejected and dispirited escapists into witness whom no opposition could muzzle. This wouldn't have happened. These disciples, when Jesus was crucified, they ran away. They hid themselves in fear of what could happen to themselves. And so a final theory is that perhaps the Jewish authorities themselves moved the body. But again, why would they do this? And if they had, sure, they would simply reveal the body once people started to claim the resurrection had happened. The religious leaders and the Roman soldiers were so concerned about the empty tomb, what are they going to do to explain this, that they themselves made up a theory. And we read about that in Matthew 28, 11 to 15. really happened chapter 28 verse 4 the guards were so afraid of him that they shook that that, that is of the the angels that they shook and became like dead men and so here we have all these different theories to try and explain the empty tomb but none very good and all easily refuted historian Paul Mayer concludes that if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. And no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, archaeology, that would disprove this great statement. And then finally, if the disciples had actually stolen the body, why would they fold the grave clothes? And so, the execution, Jesus really did die at the end of the tomb. He wasn't there. Thirdly, the eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists a group of people who witnessed Jesus alive in the 40 days after his resurrection until he went to heaven, and it's quite an impressive list. Who has 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the first day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the world. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. 
So there's a list of all these people who witnessed Jesus alive. But wasn't it women who first of all discovered the missing body? When we read the Gospels, we see it's Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James, and other women who went to that tomb on the first morning. Well, interestingly enough, they didn't have culture at that time. The testimony of a woman would have been, well, wouldn't have been listened to, would have been dismissed completely. William Lay Craig, an expert in defending the resurrection, he says this about um, a woman's testimony. He says, a woman's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. In light of this, it's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are these women. Any later legendary accounts would have certainly portrayed male disciples as discovering the tomb. Peter or John, for example. The fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by the reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. A woman's testimony was not even considered. It was just dismissed. But yet, they were the ones who first saw the empty tomb. And in fact, it may well have been Mary Magdalene who was the first person to see Jesus after he'd come back to life. The Gospel writers just wouldn't have written this if it weren't true. So the women. Next, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to the disciples, the twelve disciples. And we read about this in, in the Gospels. But was it Jesus that they saw? Could it have been someone else? Well, think about Thomas. John 20, Doubting Thomas as he is known. He wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the eleven. He was them out shopping or something. And he came back and, he, and they said, you've seen Jesus. But Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, I put my hands in his side, that I will not believe. Fair enough. Jesus then appeared to Thomas and Jesus says, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Okay, so we've got the twelve disciples and some women. It's a nice small little group. Perhaps they concocted this plan about the resurrection and spread these false rumours. But hold on, because next Paul says that Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. And then he says that also most of these guys are still alive. And so if you want to know, go and ask them. One interesting theory that someone has put forward is that maybe the disciples were hallucinating. So they didn't actually see Jesus alive, they just thought they did and they had some kind of out-of-body experience. But is it possible for 500 people at the same time to have the same hallucination? Well, no. Hallucinations, by definition, are personal. They're internal. Hallucinations occur when the human mind is in a real desperate state of expectation of real physical need. You know, a great example is when you see an oasis in the desert and you run for the water, but it's not really there. 
Yes, the disciples were overwhelmed with grief and, and sorrow, but they weren't expecting to see Jesus. They didn't understand his predictions. Hallucinations often happen when people are on drugs. Not that I know that. And I'm sure the disciples probably weren't on drugs. They hadn't understood the resurrection and they weren't expecting it. And so for the disciples to see Jesus on multiple occasions in multiple different situations can't have been hallucination. So back to Paul. Jesus appeared to the women, to disciples, to 500 people and then, and then he, he appeared to Saul of Tarsus. Pharisee, a, a Christian hater, Christian persecutor, a Christian murderer. Surely he was the last person to have ever been convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. But yet, he saw Jesus face to face on that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 8. And he couldn't refute the evidence. There he was. It's quite a cool table I found in one of my books. I don't know if you can see that. But the 12 different appearances of Jesus. And on the left you've got all the names of the different people we've just mentioned. And then we can see whether they just saw him, whether they heard him, or whether they even touched him in the middle column there. And there's other things we learn. Jesus ate food. He had a real physical body. He ate food with his disciples. So there are many different eyewitness accounts, many different appearances, claims of the, of the resurrection. But maybe all of this stuff is just made up decades after the event. So the question is, are there actually any early records of Jesus being alive? Well, see, the the idea of resurrection just wouldn't have been really thought about in that culture, particularly with the Greeks and Romans. The physical body was hated, spiritual life was what was important. The Sadducees, some of those religious leaders didn't even believe in the resurrection, so it wasn't that common but what does, does the Old Testament say anything about it? Can we look back at the Old Testament and see about a resurrection? Was it believed possible? Was it expected? Well, looking back into the Old Testament, we can actually go back to Genesis. And this idea that the possibility of coming back to life happens with, with Abraham. Think back to that time when he goes to sacrifice his son Isaac. God tells him to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the one who the promise was given to. Abraham obeyed. Now, what was his thinking? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that he either believed that God would provide another sacrifice, or he believed that God could raise his son from the dead. Hebrews 11. Other Old Testament characters, Job, Job nineteen. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on earth, 
And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. So yet he will die. He will be alive in his flesh. He will see God. David in Psalm 16, a verse that Paul Peter quotes on day of Pentecost, he says, you will not, not predicting Jesus, that you will not abandon me in the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. And Peter quotes this on the day of Pentecost. And then Isaiah 26. And there are more. I think of Ezekiel and his valley of the dry bones ultimately to be fulfilled at the final resurrection. And then there are, of course, Jesus' own predictions that we read in the Gospels. People have often thought about is it possible for Jesus to fulfill some of his Old Testament prophecies in his own effort and his own strength? I'm sure he may well have been clever enough to fulfill some of these prophecies. But to rise from the dead three days after you've been killed is something you can't have control over. To even predict exactly how it's going to happen is a miracle in itself. In Mark's Gospel alone, Jesus says on three separate occasions that he'll be arrested and and tried and crucified and three days later he will rise from the dead. The disciples didn't get it. They heard this. They didn't understand what he meant. But interestingly enough, the chief priests did. Well, they certainly heard about it, and that's when they came up with this theory to protect the tomb. Well, some have said that it was all very well the Gospels telling us predictions of the appearances of, of, uh, of Jesus, but on the, weren't the Gospels written decades later after the event? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. It's a quite interesting thing about just this little section here. 1 Corinthians may well have been the very first New Testament book to be written, possibly AD 55, around that, so it's only 25 years after Jesus. And as you read through this, it's, it's quite, people often agree that it possibly comes from an early Christian creed. So a group of saying, a group of beliefs that Christians have, they pulled it together, they passed it around orally, this is what we believe as Christians, and people knew it, they understood it, and they would say it to one another. Paul's passing on what he'd received from others, setting out all these kind of set things, the phraseology that goes on in this passage. People believe that it's come from an early creed that Christians believed. And part of that is, of course, that Jesus has risen from the dead, according to the Scriptures. And so Christians have this early conviction that the resurrection was true. And as you read through the whole of the New Testament, you, you get this, well, it's written in the light of the resurrection. It's, it's this general thrust throughout that it's pointing forward towards a final resurrection. It's all about that, the hope that we have in Christ. So the execution. Jesus really did die. The empty tomb. No sign of his body. The eyewitnesses. The early records. And then finally, the emergence of the church. It's quite incredible how quickly and how far spread the church grew just in those early years. You take the book of Acts, 
Think of that first day, the first day of Pentecost. The number of followers went from 120 to 3,000 just in that one day after that one sermon. It would be great to be able to have that result from your preaching. And then by verse 47 of chapter 2, the people were being added daily to the church. Chapter 4, verse 4, the number grew to 5,000. And at the the beginning of chapter 6, the number was so large that it was causing problems with leadership and helping those who were in need. And in Acts alone, the gospel had gone from Jerusalem, right around the local areas, across to Rome with Paul. And as we know today, it spread all across the world to all different countries, different languages, different peoples. People have heard about the resurrection of Jesus and they believed it and trusted in Jesus. But let's not be deceived. It's not as if this was an easy thing to do. People didn't just believe without any problems. The early church was persecuted. It faced harsh opposition. Peter and John arrested twice within the first four chapters. Stephen stoned in chapter 7. James is killed in chapter 12. Paul and Silas beaten up in chapter 16. And Paul imprisoned and taken to Rome at the end of Acts. And tradition tells us that all the disciples in one way or another died and gave their life to defend what they really believed. And that was Jesus had risen from the dead. And surely, surely they would only do that if they really had seen and were convinced by it. They wouldn't give their lives up if they knew it was a lie. If they really had stolen the body. So they either had been deceived extremely well, somehow, or they had actually really seen Jesus from the dead. There's a couple of testimonies. One from Professor Thomas Arnold, who's a headmaster, but also famous for the his book, History of Rome, and he was appointed the Chair of Modern History at Oxford University, and he says, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which has proved better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God... Ah. Yeah, good thing you should say that. Given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. I'll take this from Sir Lionel Luckhu. He was actually in the Guinness Book of Re- Guinness World Book of Records for his unprecedented 245 consecutive defence murder trial acquittals. He says this about the strength of the resurrection. I have spent more than 42 years as a defence trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I'm still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successful jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And then back to John Lennox. He says, It is not a mismatch to hold to a scientific evidence for the existence of God 
and the ability for that creator to feed a new event into the system, whether that be the virgin birth of Christ or his resurrection from the dead. So we have seen briefly five pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And um, there are a number of books that I'd recommend if you want to read more about this. You can say this stuff far better than I can. Two of them here. One will be as a Lee Strobel, <clears throat> The Case of, of Easter. You may have heard of him. He wrote The Case of Christ. <clears throat> the Reason for God. Tim Keller, there's a chapter in there on the resurrection. Uh, Josh McDowell, who I mentioned earlier on, his book is Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And N.T. Wright has also written a good exegetical book um, called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And then also William Lay Craig is really good on this topic. You can look at him on YouTube. Um, so there you go. So we've looked at this evidence for the resurrection. But what if it is really true? What difference does this make? Let's just think about this as we come to an end. If you're not a Christian here this evening and you've heard these pieces of evidence that Jesus really did die and his body has not been found, so where is he? What difference does that make for you? Please talk to someone. Please keep asking questions. Please investigate this further. Because if the resurrection really is true, then that changes everything. If there really is life after death, that changes everything. And it does for us if you are a Christian as well. So what difference does it make as a Christian? Let's encourage ourselves this evening as we end and turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe everybody, grab a Bible and let's look at these verses again. I was going to get you into little groups to discuss this a little bit. Time has quickly ticked away, but um, I might get you to do it anyway very quickly. But chapter 15... Take a look at verses 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. And then 29 to 32. Right, just with the person next to you, why don't you quickly read through those verses and ask yourself one question. If it's, as a Christian, if it's not true, if the, resurrection, if the resurrection isn't true, what difference does that make? Scan the verses and answer that quickly. <clears throat> Okay, sorry, not much time there, but just shout out some, some things for me. 
what if it's not true? No salvation. Anything specific from sex? Let's <laughs> <laughs> quickly have quickly we want to do some so, things. Why this yeah. Yeah. So if it's not true then Christ is not raised. So that God is dead and it's human nature is no more. There's no hope for us. Preaching is, is useless. I'm out of a job. Faith is useless and futile. Putting our trust and our hope in something that just isn't, isn't right. Interesting. False witnesses about God. You know, we're spreading lies about what God's doing, his plan, and it's not the future he has. The lies and deceivers. Yeah, we're to be pitied above all people. Giving our lives, particularly if we're endangering, endangering ourselves, as Paul says, being willing to suffer and be persecuted. Fighting through sin. If it's not true, as I just heard down here, what is the point that I had in my notes actually? We should do as Oxford had on their window eat, drink, and be merry. Although they did not have, for tomorrow we die. Um, it's true. If this resurrection is not true, then why are we here this evening? Go, eat, drink, and be merry. But, as Paul says in verse 20, Christ has indeed risen from the dead. Somebody read for me verses 20 to 28. 20 to 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. With each in turn, Christ the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he has the will of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything is put under his him, it is clear. This does not include God who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Okay. So Jesus is the first fruits, the first to rise from the dead. He is the proof that it's possible. He's laying the way, and in Christ we too will be raised. Resurrection is possible because of this one man, so it's not as if. Um, Jesus rose from the dead, but no one else can. Through faith in him, we too will be raised. Because one man died for sin, so in him all men will be made alive. Jesus will destroy all dominions, all authorities, all powers, including the last enemy of death. That thing that will happen to all of us, that fear, death and what lies beyond, will be completely and finally destroyed. Great verses. So what difference does it make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. 
If it's really true that Jesus really died for sin, and through faith in him our sins are paid for, that condemnation, that wrath, that hell, that awaits those who don't believe, is no more. God is satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice through that awful act of crucifixion we thought about. And through the resurrection it means that we're justified, we're made right before God. We're forgiven, we're free, we're adopted as sons, where we inherit eternal life. Tim Keller says that whenever people ask him, or when people come to him with struggles about believing what Jesus says, he says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then why would you worry about anything that he said? Through faith we live in great hope, not in fear. We live in light of the future, of eternity, not about here and now and living for the moment. We don't mourn when loved ones die, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. But we rejoice in Jesus Christ. The resurrection changes everything for us. Let me finish by telling you a story. Lee Strobel, the guy who wrote A Case for Easter, like Josh McDowell, was a man who, a journalist, an American journalist, who went out, set out to disprove Christianity. He also ended up becoming a Christian. And he went around the States interviewing various experts, historians, and lawyers, and scholars. And one man that he interviewed, um, asked him about lots of questions. And at the end, he asked him a personal question and said, what does the resurrection mean to you? And though therefore he spoke about his wife, who was called Debbie, who died of cancer in 1995. And he says this, he says, I was, I was sat on my porch one evening, my wife was upstairs dying. And except for a few weeks she was at home through it all. And this was the worst thing that could possibly happen. But do you know what was so amazing? My students would call me and say, at a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection? As sober as those circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. First, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teaching. And second, it worked. As I would sit there, I pictured Job, who went through all sorts of terrible stuff. And he asked questions to God. But then God would turn the tables and would ask him a few questions. I knew if God were to come to me, I'd ask him only one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed? And I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? And I'd say, well, come on, Lord, I've written seven books about that topic. Of course he rose from the dead, but I want to know about Debbie. And I think he'd come back in with the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? He asked the question until I'd get his point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer for Debbie's death in 1995. And do you know what? It worked for me while I was sitting on that porch and it still works for me today.
I still worried, I still wondered how I, I was going to raise four kids alone. But there wasn't a time when the truth didn't comfort me. Losing my wife was the most painful experience I've ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it would get me through anything. What about you? This season? What about you? What is the significance of the resurrection?